Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I'm feeling like a fresh sheet of paper still warm from the printer. Ooh, nice. How are you feeling? I'm feeling like, I feel like Babar at the UN. Babar at the UN. What is he doing? <laughs> what is he, is he presenting? Is he voting? He's representing. He's representing. In one way or another, yes. <laughs> That's like that. You should come I think he was political, game. right? He was political in Bad some bar? sense, right? He was like a king. He was a king or something like that, right? Yeah, he, if he, I'm remembering he, right. he can attend the UN. Yeah, so it makes sense. Okay, so um, he would be there. Let's also talk about something that I knew you were going to talk about on this episode about how I don't say your name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark, so the first few. This sh- I mean, Gagne. it just shows how long you've known me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was I was Mark Gagney forever in your previous life. Yeah, it's just like it just wasn't worth it correcting anyone. I just didn't care if you if you can't make that big of a change in your hometown, like it just would never fly. So, like as soon as I went to grad school and like my whole, whole professional life, I've been Mark Gagne. It's a little, <laughs> little more class. Does your yeah. does your have your parents like always said that? Uh, I mean, sort of. This is like reminding me themselves. of a... yeah, like the, the the Gagne side. Yeah, you've seen way, you've so. seen Joe Dirt, right? Yeah, where he starts talking about his name is actually Deerte. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> actually, my name's Deerte. Put an E on the end. Anyway, um, yeah, what, like what's, so. Yeah, I, I kind of like. What are we doing for the game? Uh so this week. I was kind of, I've been thinking a little bit about like the intersection of, you know, two of my favorite things in the world, mm-hmm. um, probably on your list too, you know, food and fiction. So I thought we could talk about our favorite food slash drinks slash meals in literature. So, you know, these could be completely fictional or just foods that are described in a nice way, I guess, you know, because some writers have a knack for making you hungry. Just talking about the most basic stuff. Yeah. It could be like porridge or like gruel. But if it's satisfying to the character, it ends up sounding delicious. You know, like you kind of relate to that. Or maybe even the opposite. Like if they describe something that's gross, you're like, that's gross. Oh, yeah. It can hit you um, Mm -hmm. if they're if they're good at it. Um, So I want to start with probably maybe an obvious one. I bet you have it on your list, too. Um, talking about uh, Lembus bread from the Lord of the Rings. Oh, I, that is not on yeah. my list. Lambus oh, that was the bread. first one I thought of. Yeah. I always, how do you think of Lembus bread? Like, I almost think of it as like a shortbread cookie. Yeah, you know, have you ever had the the Belvita breakfast biscuit things from Nabisco? You know those things? Maybe Belvita. They've all, you should look it up right now. Um, they've always reminded me of Lembus bread. It, uh, oh, it's yeah, B-E-L-V-I-T-A. Yeah. yeah, they even have like an elvish looking design on them of like a wheat stalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I Did always you know, think of like the shortbread cookie is like, um, you know, you buy them, dunk them into tea and stuff like that. They don't, yeah, they're yeah. probably not too different from these Belvita things. So I was looking into this uh, Lemba spread a little bit, the backstory. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it, they were meant to be kind of symbolic of like the Eucharist, like communion wafers. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, because um, Token and C.S. Lewis were big into 
religious uh, symbolism and stuff. Yeah. 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 So like Gollum and other like evil creatures can't stomach it or can't eat it. Like mm-hmm. in the same way, like the like non-Catholics aren't supposed to receive it. Right. Uh, anyway, so what do you got? What's your uh, what's your first one? My first one is, uh, and I really don't have that many, but they made an impression on me. My first, like when you say cooking in books, I think of, and I haven't read one of these books literally since I was maybe less than 10 years old. I maybe like maybe less than 15, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> like 12 or 10 years old or something. Do you, do, do you know the Redwall series from Brian Jacks? Every, and it's yeah, like, I, yeah. I know it's about like a, that. I haven't. It, re- I never read any of them. It's a fantasy series where all of the characters are. It's almost like um. What's that book where all of like the rabbits are sentient? Watership, Watership down. down. So there's like that. Like Watership Down. So Redwall is sort of like that, where it's like fantasy novels about you know kings and queens or whatever, but everyone is like a squirrel or a rabbit or a mole or whatever, and he just has like incredibly vivid. Just like pretty much probably one of the only things that I even remember about Redwall. I don't remember a single plot. I don't remember a single character's name. I don't remember anything like that. <laughs> but he does have these big scenes of describing um, of describing food. So much so that in my research for this episode, I learned that there's the Redwall cookbook. Which is an actual oh. like cookbook that came out with illustrations. And... Um, it's it's it says it's the author is still Brian Jack, so there is the Redwall cookbook with illustrations, but you know, there's things in the book and throughout his books like uh you know let me see here. Hare's Paw Spring Vegetable Soup and Cheerful Church Mouse Cherry Crisp <laughs> and uh Mole's favorite deeper than ever turnip and tater and beetroot pie. <laughs> uh and the vegetable vegetable mole bake so it's like all these moles okay. and mouses and squirrels and stuff like that and they always like he always has like half a chapter where it's like they had these great like it's always like baked goods and like really just like it almost feels like the whole thing happens like in a fall like town where it's you know the apple cider donuts are happening and yeah and all that, <laughs> all that crazy stuff so th- that's one food thing that i remember and i think we're gonna have another one in common but you go okay you go nice next. all right my next one is uh subtraction stew from the phantom toll booth oh, okay by Norton yeah. Juster. you heard of that um no. So it makes you hungrier as you eat it because mm-hmm. it's made out of assorted polygons and minus symbols. So uh, <laughs> it would be a useful, it'd be a useful food for like buffets, like getting your money's worth or like other occasions like that. It, I, uh, it's negative I, eating. I, pur- <laughs> negative eating. I purposely, um, my niece is only like almost three at this point or just over three. I'm a terrible uncle and I Mm -hmm. don't remember exactly her age, but she's obviously too young for the phantom toll booth at this point. But, um, I purposely, like when she was a baby, like when she was an infant, I bought the phantom toll booth and I was like, my sister, I was like, just put this on the shelf and it just has to sit there and she's going to see it like a bunch (laughs) of times and not know about it. And then one day, hopefully she'll pick up the phantom toll booth and the legend will continue. Um, nice yeah because you know right. you, like that cover is very sort of inspiring to a child you know and you're just like what? yeah like this phantom toll booth especially like 
you're you're basically going to read that book maybe when you start to know what the word phantom means. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a formative one for me. Cool. Yeah, I know. So yeah, I know you you're got. a huge fan, Tolu fan. Um, yeah. I have, and I think that this is the one that we're going to have in common. I have the candy scene from uh, uh, Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> okay. By, by uh, so Thomas I don't Fitzgerald. have that. Mm-hmm. I have something connected to that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so well, there's a scene in Gravity's Rainbow by Pinchon Pinchon. He, maybe he re- reinvented his name halfway through his life. Maybe yeah. that's why he doesn't yeah. let anybody like take his picture because everyone was calling him attention. <laughs> he was just sick of it. Yeah. Um, but there's just a scene in Gravity's Rainbow. Probably like, would you say one of the funniest? I think it's one of the funniest scenes. Yeah, it's uh, incredibly descriptive. Yeah, it's hilarious, and like you probably feel the most from it. Yeah, he's just I I I don't really I, I can't really choose like it's basically the whole scene is really funny. It's kind of hard to isolate and I don't want to take, you know, 10 minutes in the intro game to, uh, to, um, to introduce it. But I did find one sentence. Um, so a character is eating, being forced to eat candies with Mrs. Quode. Right. And it says through the tears, he can't see it too well, but he can hear Mrs. Quode across the table going yum, 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 yum. And Darlene giggling. It is enormous and soft like a marshmallow, but somehow, unless something is now going seriously wrong with his brain, it tastes like gin. What's this? He inquires thickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they're eating gin marshmallows. Yeah. In Gravity's Rainbow. So I had something also from Gravity's Rainbow. It's from the very beginning. Um, there's a character called Pirate Prentice, and like he tricks you into thinking that he's actually going to be around for a lot of the book, and he's not. But right, he yeah. is famous for his banana breakfast because I guess they're in a some kind of radioactive zone or whatever, and the bananas have grown to extreme sizes, so that he just makes like this crazy meal that everything involves bananas. So you got like omelets, casseroles, French toast, uh, banana syrup. You got Waffles with bananas cooked into it, croissants, mm. uh, oatmeal, jam, banana bread, and some uh, brandy flambe, and uh, yeah, just a shitload of uh, banana-related <laughs> foods. Banana foods. That's a very descriptive scene too. Oh yeah, that is, isn't that like right in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's in like the first ten pages. Yeah. Oh my god, that part is really weird. I feel like you can go over that book for a lifetime and just like bring up like bananas and you're like, oh yeah, that yeah. part is really crazy. That's like it's also mixed in with everyone is like evacuating the city, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. the first scene right and the they start. starts talking about bananas and stuff. I'm like, yeah, oh. I think the breakfast gets interrupted by the evacuation. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my next one, and this is my final one. I only did three. Is, oh, okay. I got a few more. Okay. It's sort of related to Lord of the Rings, but not really. But the first scene, like the first chapter in The Hobbit's called An Unexpected Party. And that's when all the dwarves come to Bilbo's house just out of nowhere. Basically, Gandalf shows up and he's like, here's all these dwarves. And then... Bilbo gets super stressed throwing a party and he cooks like a ton of food for Thor. Yeah, they raid. Yeah, they, they raid basically his whole storage. Yeah, but it's also like Tolkien has that great kind of quality of describing his pantry and stuff and just you know, 
Um, and then there's also that great scene when they like wash all the dishes together and stuff like that. It's a terrible scene in the movie. Again, there is no endorsement (laughs) of the Hobbit movie whatsoever in this podcast, but, um, but yeah, when Thorin, uh, the King under the mountain comes to Bilbo's house and they completely wreck his pantry. It's a good scene. Nice. That's a good one. Um, all right. My next one is, uh, the soft drink, Dr. Nut. From uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Oh my god! Uh, Ignatius Ignatius J. Riley's favorite drink. He Doctor. like pounds them throughout the Doctor. book. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot so, about so, yeah, that book. <laughs> yeah, so that book's like you know based in uh, New Orleans in like mm-hmm. the 30s, 40s, or whatever. I think. Um, so it was uh, that was a regional almond flavored soft drink produced in the New Orleans area oh, from the so that's, 30s to the 70s. Wow, so that's an actual like historical reference. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I looked up a little about it. It tasted like amaretto, apparently. Whoa, um, Dr. Nut. <laughs> the logo was a squirrel nibbling on a large nut. And the slogan that I saw was, uh, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious. That's, like, that's all the marketing you needed when marketing was first invented. You know, like the copywriter, yeah, the copywriter sitting there scratching his head and he's like, you know what? It's perfect. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> that's our slogan. It's delicious. No one else has the, has the market cornered on it's delicious. I wonder if Dr. Nutt had any influence on Dr. Pepper. I don't know. Might mm-hmm. be the first doctor drink. I think doc, no, Dr. Pepper might have come out before that. Yeah, doctor. It might it might have been a copycat. Also, I mean, I can piggyback on the bat on on your Confederacy of Dunces scene with because there's the other scene in Confederacy of Dunces where he like gets entrusted with that hot dog cart and then he just eats all the hot dogs. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the first time in his life, he has like an actual like income and a job, and he's supposed to be trucking this hot dog cart around New Orleans, and then he just yeah. wastes his entire day eating all the hot dogs. <laughs> so I, yeah, if we're we're talking about A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. If anyone hasn't read that, just go read it right now. Yeah, it's stop like this book ever. This, maybe this will be the only time we say this on the podcast. Turn the podcast off. <laughs> go read yeah. Confederacy <laughs> of Dunces and then come back. Um, oh, my God. That book is so good. How did you get introduced yeah. to Confederacy of Dunces? Uh, it was, I think, you. Really? Yeah. I, get, I get the reward. I got introduced yeah. by Confederacy of Dunces because this is really a crazy story. I worked on, I used to work for a documentary company and I worked, I was their intern and I would like work on, you know, like stuff in their office and like watch the trailers that they were cutting and stuff like that. And they were working on um, a documentary where everyone obviously shall remain nameless, where the subjects were people who suffer from manic depression. So, and one of them was a stand-up comedian who told this hilarious story about the symptoms of like how you're like when you're manic depressive or in like a manic episode, your brain kind of makes connections that aren't real. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And he told this hilarious story about how he was once like at a comedy festival and he thought that like people were like after him, like in his hotel. And he was like really having an episode, you know, like this is sad stuff. Like I think in the interview, he was like crying about it and stuff like that. But he talked about how the significant, he had, he had Confederacy of Dunces with him at the time. And this guy who he thought was like, you know, he was paranoid that he was like, this guy was after him or he was like a government operative or something. And he thought that, he he had Confederacy of Dunces with him and he was sliding it across the table at like this complete stranger, like thinking that it held significance. 
because he was like, it's a confederacy of dunces and the world is all a lie and stuff like that. And that's what that book is about. So when he was talking about this really strange book called Confederacy of Dunces, I was like, what? And I looked it up and the rest is history. Nice. Um, so thanks for that, Manic Depression. You've done one good thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I have a few more. So I'm going to okay. power through these. I might, I might uh, think of something. Okay. So from um, the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Um, so that book's about a girl named Francie Nolan growing up like in poverty in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is about the family, you know, stretching their resources and getting creative with, with what they've got, like right. getting creative with food, you mm -hmm. know, like whipping up something truly from scratch or like, you know, discount food and everything. Uh, so I'm just going to read a quick paragraph from that that's descript, uh, describing one of the meals. Okay. Uh, the Nolans practically lived on that stale bread, and what amazing things Katie could make from it. She'd take a loaf of stale bread, pour boiling water over it, work it up into a paste, flavor it with salt, pepper, thyme, minced onion, and an egg, if eggs were cheap, and bake it in the oven. When it was good and brown, she made a sauce from half a cup of ketchup, two cups of boiling water, seasoning, a dash of strong coffee, thickened it with flour, and poured it over the baked stuff. It was good, hot, tasty, and staying. What was left over was sliced thin the next day and fried in hot bacon fat. So, yeah. Sounds, sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty tasty. Yeah. At first, I didn't know if it was going to be tasty or not, but then it did sound tasty. Yeah, just working with what you got. Uh, and you did. You reminded me of something that yeah. is going to be my next food one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I got to mention... So we, everything that we've mentioned so far has been positive about food, right? Like funny scenes uh -huh. and stuff where it sounds good and stuff like that. But it would, I guess it would be remiss not to mention um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Have you ever read that book? Uh, no, but I, I know what it's about. Yeah, sometime, sometimes required reading in schools in the United States. But um, it's the story... It's a story of sort of like urban inner city life in the meatpacking industry in Chicago. Um, but it's not, you know, obviously there's a lot of human drama that he writes about and stuff like that. But I will just read a quick paragraph from Upton Sinclair. I think this book was well known as one of the first books that... Um, it, it, it got really popular and then a lot of people like went vegetarian because of how brutal it was because it talks about, you know, no nonsense like meatpacking. And I think, I think. Yeah, it was revealing. It was like some nader shit. And I, yeah, and I do, I actually think too that it had an effect on policy in the United, I think like somebody somehow like establishing the Food and Drug Administration or something like that, it was due to the popularity of, of the jungle. Um, yeah. So I'll just read this really quickly. I mean, the book is rife with a million different things um, like this, but this paragraph is, with one member trimming beef in a cannery and another working in a sausage factory, the family had a firsthand knowledge of the great majority of packing town swindles, for it was the custom, as they found, whenever meat was so spoiled that it could not be used for anything else, either to can it or else chop it up into a sausage. With what, what had been told them by Jonas, who had worked in the pickle rooms, they could now study the whole of the spoiled meat industry on the inside and read a new grim meaning into that old Packingtown jest that they use everything of the pig except the squeal. Gross. Gross. <laughs> Gross. All right. Last one I've got. Um, the 
pan-galactic gargle blaster, the cocktail invented by Zafad Beeblebrox in Hitchhiker's oh, Guide. in Hitchhiker's Guide. As soon as you said, yeah. I didn't know exactly what you were talking about as soon as you said it, and then I said, you know what, that sounds like Douglas Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Described as the alcoholic equivalent of a mugging, like having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. <laughs> He's always the best yeah. at those. The, 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 <laughs> so I, I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I, I forgot what was like on the menu at the restaurant at the end of the universe. I was trying to like I didn't have enough time to like look into that. Yeah, I do remember. So we're taught like for our listeners, list, all the people who listen to us, we're talking about Douglas Adams in the series Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and in the restaurant at the end of the universe, isn't that don't they have a waiter that's a cow, and they're about to eat the cow who's the waiter? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, like, like a cow walks up to their, uh, yeah, a cow walks up to their table and it's like, what slice of meat do you want (laughs) (laughs) off of my body? (laughs) Interesting. Um, last one outside, outside of books, just cause I was kind of in this thought process. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my favorites, uh, that I would like to try is the the pure energy or whatever from the Tron movie, like the original Tron movie. Right. That stuff sounds awesome. Yeah. No, yeah, that is. Yeah, you're right. I think you, did I tell you, did you tell me or did I tell you that, um, did you know that Tron was disqualified from a special effects Oscar? Why? It's really, it's a funny story, especially now in today's world, but Tron, the original, was disqualified from a special effects Oscar because it was all computers, and they were like, that's not special effects, it's computers. Oh, damn. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> yeah, that, they should give it a prize uh, in retrospect. They should definitely do so. I wonder if they have done something like that, because I've actually known people who have won Technical Academy Awards, and that's like serious bullshit. Like, if I was the person who had worked on Tron, I would be like, are you kidding yeah yeah it's the new it's the standard now like that's yeah, yeah that's absolutely. insane yeah <laughs> so funny so that was pretty interesting food and literature uh F- food and yeah. books mixed if you guys think of anything that we missed let us know yeah give us a shout out maybe oh, we'll probably yeah. ever since we started doing the podcast we you know it, it makes kind of like previously you know you don't really know what you want to post to twitter what you want to post to instagram about but ever since we've been doing the podcast i'm walking around being like oh i can post that like definitely for yeah sure. yeah it's related um yeah <laughs> it's definitely yeah it's related so i'm sure we'll spit out a few things on there as well yeah cool so uh, i think i'm going first this week it's an odd Maybe number real, so uh, yeah you go first yeah the meat of the podcast um the book reports <laughs> themselves okay all right. So, do you remember when English class was called language arts? That's probably, yeah, you know, that, when we did our first book reports. Yeah, language, I guess. Yeah, that's like before that's like before middle school, right? Preschool. Yeah, I think or not I preschool, think but like elementary school, Parker. middle school maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um so I I never really understood the language arts name back then, but I think I was just, you know, too stupid to make sense out of it. It's pretty <laughs> self-explanatory. But <laughs> by uh, so language arts by definition, it's the exercise of reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So let's think about that a little because it's pretty open-ended. Mm. You know, can it be any expression of the four tools? 
Yeah, for I mean, for example. real, like a, like a smart-ass little kid should have been like, I'm just listening. Yeah, yeah. Like, for example, you know, <laughs> is like, is a Dilbert tearaway calendar, like language arts? Like, I think it fits. Or like, you know, a mug that says some stupid shit on it, like, coffee is my yoga, Hulu is my Netflix. Like, does that count? That's language <laughs> arts right there. Hulu is my Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's all. I think it's all encompassing. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, that was stupid, but <laughs> the, the book that I have, the book that I have this week is, you know, truly it's a work of art with language at its center. Okay. Uh, and that language is what's called a language isolate, meaning that it doesn't have a known connection to any other existing language. Okay. So it's essentially an almost dead language that's been passed on by, you know, a very small group of people over many generations. And you were able to read this book? Oh, hell no. No, it's translated. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the Basque language and the novel Obabakoic by Bernardo Achaga. Whoa. Okay. Where, what reason? Basque is, is that in Spain? It's the it's on the border of Span of Spain and France, so like um, okay, yep. northern Spain and southwestern France, like right on that uh, that border there. Right, obviously. Okay, uh, you you warned me before this podcast that I definitely never heard of your book, and you've proven me right. So continue. Yes, I was counting on that. Um, so Bernardo Atchaga, that's um, spelled A T X A G A. So it took me a little while to figure out how to pronounce it. I was going to go with Atsaga, but it's at it probably, it probably took the translators a while to figure out how to say it too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually a pseudonym of uh, Joseba Garmendia, who was born in 1951 in the Spanish part of the Basque country, which, like I said before, is uh, northern Spain and southwestern France, mm-hmm. basically either on either side of the shared border between the two countries. Um so Atchaga, he has degrees in both economics and philosophy, uh, and he worked as an economist, a publisher, and a professor of the Basque language until 1980 when he started writing full-time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it always gives me so, hope to hear about authors that started re- like writing after, you know, when they're older. So. <laughs> yeah, I had a career first and mm-hmm. established, so some hope. Um, so the Basque language itself is said to be rooted as far back as like the stone age, although that's not exactly proven, but at the very least it predates the Roman empire. So, you know, it's incredibly old, but it's somehow still spoken in, in uh, parts of that Basque country. Um, and one really interesting thing about that is that the Spanish dictator, uh, Francisco Franco, mm-hmm. who ruled from 1936 until his death in 1975, uh, he tried to suppress the Basque language and, he tried to establish like a uniformity for traditional uh, Castilian Spanish. Okay. So like back then, all legal documents were to be done in traditional Spanish or they would be null and void. Hmm. The language was, you know, outlawed in schools, in advertisements and road signs in the 40s and 50s. Hmm. Um, a lot of the books written in Basque were burned by Franco. Um, Not cool, dude. Yeah, yeah. So at Chaga, he was born in 1951, so he grew up with some of these rules. So it inspired him to write in Basque and, you know, carry on the tradition, um, mm-hmm. specifically the Basque language of Euskara. A language rebel. Uh, so, you know, yeah, he is a rebel, and he's basically 
carried the torch for an ancient language and it's pretty cool um yeah you know any kind of act like that under a dictatorship is like really brave and it's uh you know it's a political act even even doing something like that uh mm -hmm. okay so back to the book at hand obaba koek it's uh o-b-a-b-a-k-o-a-k -A -A i might not be pronouncing it right but it's super that easy is to a remember Basque word. yeah <laughs> You're going to think I'm saying Obama a million times. Um, <laughs> Obama what? <laughs> Obaba Koek. It means the individuals and things of Obaba in Basque. Um, and this book is a collection of some loosely connected short stories uh, centered around a fictional village called Obaba. Um, it was published in 1988 to a lot of critical praise, and it won like the highest literary award in Spain. Um, yeah, so like when I first picked up this book, I was like, I, I assumed it was extremely old, you know, yeah. um, but it's, it's, you know, as old as us. Uh, so I've got a quote here from Echaga describing the village really quick. Okay. He says, uh, Obaba is an interior landscape. You don't remember all the places of the past, but what sticks in the memory is this window, that stone, the bridge. Obaba is the country of my past, a mixture of the real and the emotional. Um, so this book, it has some of the basic elements of like magical realism in it, but it's not overbearing. It's kind of subtle. You know, um, there's some like visions and some like improbable circumstances and like myths that become reality or some kind of random clairvoyance. Uh, just wondering, like, what are your thoughts on magical realism? Like... Is it distinct it, from fantasy? Like, what do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, it is distinct from fantasy. Um, it's it's so crazy that you're asking me this right now because I'm literally, I had this conversation with my girlfriend yesterday. Um, yeah. And I think I think the the big the big thing with magical realism for me is I I definitely don't like it by default, but I have come to realize that I accept it if it's done well. So, like, you could consider Harry Potter somewhat magical realism because the real world exists in Harry Potter, but it's done so well that I'm a Harry Potter fan. Whereas yeah. other book series that will go unnamed, maybe, unless I want to name names, I will just read something and it will... Uh, and you know what? I, I'm almost a little bit scared of my own bias with magical realism because I feel like I've accepted it most completely by people like foreign authors, people with like kind of a, a, a different voice. Um, yeah, I mean, it has its roots in Latin America for sure. Like, Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Actually. There's just some, like, uh, like some stories are really just cut and dry with me where it's like if some guy just ta starts talking about wizards in New York, I'm just like, I don't want to hear about it. But... <laughs> Then there's like some of my other books, some of the other books that I've read, Murakami being a prime example. He's one of my favorite authors. So it, it really just has to do with how good you can do it. But I would say it's yeah, distinct from yeah. fantasy for sure. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's like, it's got to be like things that couldn't possibly happen because they defy, you know, physics or biology or technological possibilities or whatever mm -hmm. but there it's mixed in with you know events that are perfectly possible or it's like those things are happening in a mundane environment but it's i for me it's more about the way that it's delivered that makes it magical realism like uh 
it's got to be told in you know a straightforward manner like you just have to accept this like where like fantasy they kind of try and talk about like establishing everything with a lot of detail mm. yeah i don't know that's just kind of how i see it but yeah um so in o- obabakoic like there are a lot of quirky stories here and they're like they're loosely connected um a good amount of them are actually stories about writing and telling stories. Like the narrator is recalling some fond memories he has or some other memories. And he's showing the reader his thought process on how he wants to present them for the most effect. Hmm. Like some of the narrators are actually writing in a journal or trying to write a novel Hmm. or something. So he's analyzing Um, story structure. Yeah, yeah. So some of it's like an anal- it's analysis on storytelling and like also like a justification on why stories deserve to be passed on. So like it's almost like a really small but interesting lessons in literary theory. Uh, so that makes some makes for some very creative writing in this book and uh, and you know like the stories that are carried on like it's a re- very clear parallel to like the cult- cultural preservation of Echaga, like writing the book in the Basque language in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, so I want to read like a random passage now. Uh, and in this passage, the narrator is talking about the two bars in the village and how he prefers the one that is deemed as like the lower class one, which is called um, Nagasaki. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The Nagasaki clientele didn't bother me at all and only spoke to me when it was my round. They had no need of entertainment. All of them, from the owner down, were excellent conversationalists and weavers of interminable tales, mostly about hunting, that almost always ended in arguments. These arguments usually lasted until about three in the morning, but even so, rarely ended in any agreement. One of the regulars, an old shepherd called Agustin, used to take the same way home as me and always bade me good night with the same words. See you tomorrow, then. We can carry on where we left off, because, you know... There was some real rubbish being talked at the end there. I must confess that at first, the main topic of conversation at the Nagasaki didn't attract me. Hunting has always seemed to me a cruel pastime, and my habit of giving names to animals, something I've done since I was a child, prevents me ever doing harm to any creature, however repellent. Imagine, for example, that you have a cockroach living in your house, and one day it occurs to you to christen that cockroach Jose Maria. And then it's Ho- Jose Maria this and Jose Maria that. And very soon the creature becomes a sort of small person who may turn out to be timid or irritable or even a little conceited. And obviously in that situation, you wouldn't dream of putting poison down around the house. Well, you might consider it as an option, but no more often than you would for any other friend. But the Nystaki <laughs> regulars were real hunters. They weren't the sort of hunters who uh, return from the forest and go on and on about their heroic deeds and exploits. Listening to them, it was easy to comprehend what the old books say about hunting, that it draws down madness upon the hearts of men, and that basically all hunters are like the unfortunate abbot who, on hearing his greyhounds barking whilst he was celebrating Sunday Mass, simply dropped what he was doing and rushed off to give chase to the hare, pausing only to collect his rifle and his pack of dogs. The subject of hunting took on an unusual grandeur on their lips. It seemed more an excuse to speak of man's solitude at night, lashed by icy winds, or to describe a man's sadness on returning home with his game bag empty, after a whole day spent combing the forest, or simply as an excuse to recall their lost youth. For some of them, 
Agustin the shepherd, for example, no longer had the strength to go after boars and wolves. And beneath all the many variations on a theme, like a guiding thread, lay the idea of struggle. Not just of man against beast, but also amongst the beasts themselves. Snake against bird, weasel against rabbit, the bear against everyone else. It was the law of nature, a law that not even man could escape. Do you know how a bear kills its prey? The owner of the bar and one of the best hunters in the village once asked me. I said that I didn't. It kills with one blow of its paw, just one. And do you know what it aims for? Again, I didn't. It goes for the head. One blow and it'll rip your brains out. Just a single clean blow. It makes no odds whether it's attacking a calf or a man. It always goes for the head. Before continuing, he crossed his arms and leaned on the counter as he always did before launching into a story. I've only ever once seen a bear. Someone in the village killed it, and it was left on display in the main square for a whole morning. When you see a bear close, close to like that, that's when you understand what a bear is. Every one of its claws is as sharp as a dagger. The same goes for its teeth. It's a sight I'll never forget. The man who killed it died three days later, added Augustine. Really? Why was that? I was only a child then, so I didn't remember, said the owner, surprised. I don't know whether it's true or not, but people say he died of shock. Apparently, by the time he came back from the forest, he'd gone a bit soft in the head. Just the fact that he'd managed to kill it, I suppose. Uh, though it must be a tremendous shock suddenly coming face to face with a bear. A shock? But Augustine, how can you say that? I happen to know he'd been after that bear for over a month, intervened the group, uh, the group uh, skeptic. You be quiet. You don't know anything about it, said the bar owner, cutting him short. What's that got to do with anything? I spent five years hunting wolves. And what do you think happened when I finally caught up with them? My hair stood on end, that's what. Because I never knew, at least not exactly, just when I might find them. That's where the surprise comes in. That's what shocks you. The skeptic cast doubt on the owner's argument. The latter produced another anecdote as an example. Augustine chipped in with something else he remembered. I asked a question, and so it went on into the early hours. In the summer, we'd carry one of the tables outside and enjoy leisurely conversations beneath the stars each of us with a beer in one hand. And towards August, when the scent of newly harvested wheat wafted to us on the breeze, everyone in the group became more than usually loquacious and cheerful. The hunting season was at hand. Hmm. Yeah, so, it kind of goes all example. over. It like weaves everywhere, but it's nice. Yeah. There's a it's lot funny. of uh, stories and people telling stories within stories. It's very cool. It's funny what he mentioned in the beginning um, about naming something in your apartment because yeah. that actually um up until last year i was living in london for a little while and um one of my final apartments in london had my room had a mouse um that me and my girlfriend named putin <laughs> <laughs> and yeah he's exactly right like you have a name and like all of a sudden it's like like you know she could just text me and be like was putin there today <laughs> <laughs> uh but i still wanted to murder him nice no yeah don't yeah. don't make any bones about that i still <laughs> wanted to get rid of that stupid mouse <laughs> nice um so yeah uh so obabakoic i mean it's very entertaining and engaging like the characters all have different ways of telling their stories and mm -hmm. some roundabout some direct and you um, said that the guy did did you say that someone else translated this for him or that he I, like i think he translates it to spanish mm -hmm. and then i think someone else translated it to english interesting i don't know if he speaks english yeah um 
But, you know, like growing up under a dictatorship, I think definitely shaped the way he writes. It like kind of prioritizes the use of metaphors because you can't really say what you want to. And there's a lot of that in this book. Right. Um, I mean, what else is there? I mean, there's this book has death incarnate stalking people. Um, There's a story about a half Basque, half German boy who's swayed towards embracing his German side via like a clever scheme engineered by his father. Um, there's a chapter that acts as an instruction manual for plagiarism and proca- procrastination. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it's also interesting what you story. said about the half German story because he's sort of like displacing what's happening with the with the Basque people like, yeah. to another country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it doesn't just take place in in Obaba. Like there's some parts in Germany. There's stories that take place in Peru and Iraq as well as uh, China. Hmm. Um, there's also a story in the book about the dangers of falling asleep on the grass in Obaba as a lizard might crawl into your ear and erode your brain a little bit, turning you into like a village idiot. Whoa. Yeah. There's, that's like kind of a mystery that some characters uh, track down throughout the book. Um, (laughs) I mean, overall it's very crafty. It's reminiscent of, uh, of course, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and uh, Isabel Aland, like, but, you know, it also points to some more ancient influences, like, you know, stuff at the very inception of storytelling as an art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I recommend it. It's, it's, it's a very cool read. And, uh, yeah, found it out of nowhere. I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, did you just pick it up on the shelf? or? Yeah, um, I kind of just tend to buy anything that uh, Vintage International publishes seems like i've always had good luck with them following a label yeah yeah so i checked the spine like they have one format for how they uh it's a good thing it's a good thing to follow it's good to follow a label that's that's kind of how our friendship started too when we started watching asian asian horror movies um (laughs) <laughs> uh Tartan Asian Extreme. Tartan Asian Extreme is a is a label yeah, yeah. of Korean horror films that we it's started watching. We like, dude, as long <laughs> as it says Tartan Asian Extreme on the side, I'll watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's like any other brand. Like you once they got you, they got you, you trust with them. Mm-hmm. There's also there's a video game studio that Nintendo works with that I follow, level five. If it if it says level five, yeah. then I play it for sure. <laughs> nice. Um Awesome, dude. Great job. That sounds awesome. I mean, it just sounds like a great book. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, in typical in typical uh, style, I feel like the more we do this podcast, the more I'm learning that I'm like, I'm trying to like chop down like the classics like constantly. And I feel like I'm always like bringing like a more mainstream book to the fold when you're like, you're, you're taking it out of nowhere and like this 16th century monk wrote this thing and you know, whatever. But, um, <laughs> I'm going with, um, uh, a book called, um, coming up for air by Eric Arthur Blair, but you may know him as George Orwell. Oh, I don't um, know pseudonym pen name yeah he was his name is eric arthur blair but obviously he's george orwell and this book was published in 1939 so this book is um 
I can't. I, I'm gonna go in a little bit into the detail about Orwell's life, but obviously Orwell is one of those people like Hemingway, where it's just there's way too much to know. Like he was fighting in the Spanish Civil War, and like you know, going all over. You know, he wrote books. Uh, you know, where he was traveling around Africa and stuff like that. So. This is like a, I, I don't want to try to encapsulate the entirety of George Orwell's life because you can probably read several thousand page books about that. Um, yeah. But this, I want to talk a little bit about the cross section of what's happening with his life um, when this book comes out and also the book itself. Um, Coming Up for Air is before Animal Farm. It's before 1984. It's before some of the big hits. But at the same time, he was still... Um, a well-known enough writer that, um, you know, some of the stuff I was reading, it was like, he, he dropped this off at the publisher. You know what I mean? Like he, you know, he was at that point already where he had an, an agent and just said, here's the book that I wrote. And then they kind of, okay. it was, yeah. it, it was a small, I mean, established is, you know, I think the first printing of it or something was like 3000 books, which obviously isn't like a ton, but it's still, you know, he's an author at that point. Um, it comes at a really interesting time in Orwell's life because immediate. Okay, so he was fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Um, I think it was around like 1937 or 36, something like that. Later half of, of the 30s. And he was injured. I think he got shot or something like that. And he was injured. So basically he was out of action. And all the articles that I read, um, which is really interesting, is basically he wrote this book when um, fellow novelist and friend of his L.H. Myers, which I've never heard of that guy until I started Leo Myers, until I started um, researching for today's episode. He gave Orwell 300 pounds, Orwell and his wife, he gave him 300 pounds, which back then was probably a lot more money than it is today. And he relocated to North Africa, where they stayed in French Morocco and mainly Marrakesh from September 1938 to March 1939. And so basically he's a laid up soldier. Like he's not still in the hospital and everything, but it's like you just got like put off active duty because you were injured in a war. So he's sort of like at this point, maybe not sickly, but sort of like recovering. And he writes this book called Coming Up for Air. Um the my edition this is one of my favorite books that i own just because it's the perfect style of and i'll probably post a picture on the instagram of my edition because i i picked up this book not only from the name george orwell you know i had already read um animal farm in 1984 but this edition that i have is just the perfect example of you know the paperback that you want to get at the at nice. goodwill or whatever it's it's like a five dollar <laughs> paperback where the cover is like a cool little illustration of an english town on the thames and oh, i didn't make the list it didn't make the best book cover list though it did not make the best no. well i i went with my fantasy theme so i guess this one yeah. would have been in there but i stuck with my fantasy theme let I'll me look it, it up which one do you have i have the one it's like there's there's like planes um and like a little almost like a watercolor illustration in the bottom half um annoyingly i actually discovered this for the episode as well um I think this is one of the first books I've ever owned where there's no publishing information in the front or back. Like it doesn't say when it was printed really, (laughs) or when the book came out. Isn't that illegal (laughs) in like some like weird, like publishing rule or something like that. Um, But yeah, it doesn't say on the inside when it came out, but it did Hmm. come out in, um, in 1939. Um, 
the book itself to get into the plot of the book um the main character is a guy named george bowling um he this novel is somewhat prophetic i mean george orwell was always prophetic a little bit right like i mean he's talking about 1984 and all these political things and stuff like that i would say unequivocally to anyone who i talked about about george orwell that this is my favorite novel of his and i will fight to the death about that it's the best one um i think that i think i mean 1984 changed my life when i read that book it blew my mind and I was obsessed with it, but coming up for air is if you take a step back, it's a little bit more mature. Um, it's a little bit more kind of down to earth and not projecting into the future, but um, I'm going to read a little bit from the back omitting some things that I feel like it, I, the back of this cover is also a pet peeve of mine in the literature world where some of the stuff is like, there's spoilers like right on the back. I never read the back or the inside jacket of a book because they spoil the shit out of everything. But um, I'll read a little bit from the back. So George Bowling, the hero of this prophetic novel, is a middle-aged insurance salesman who lives in an average English suburban row house with a wife and two children. One day, after getting a new set of false teeth, he suddenly feels the need to come up for air. With 17 pounds he has won at a race, he steals a vacation from his family to visit Lower Binfield, the village where he grew up, and fish for carp in a pool he remembers from 30 years before. Um, so basically what's happening in this book, and I really want to read it again because I've, I've, um, I only read this book before I lived in the UK. So now that I've lived in the UK, I'm sure it's jam-packed with stuff that I'm really going to appreciate. But basic, like the, the basic story of the book is George... It's at a point in his life where he has two kids, he has a wife, he has a career, he's a salesman, like, and he and he does a lot of pontificating about how life is basically over at this point. Um, there's a few famous quotes that go into that that I'll get into um, in a little bit, but it's making me think of uh, falling down. Yeah, it is. is he it, snap or something. <laughs> you know what? It is. It's like falling down, but not as dramatic. So basically what happens is no guns, no guns or anything like that, but it is on the eve of World War Two. And this was published in 1939, right before um, or around the time that war is officially declared for the UK in 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 the conflict in World War Two. But what's great and what establishes, you know, it. It, it really makes you feel like Orwell was as legit as his fame eventually made him because this novel, he's already talking about how World War II is happening. Like he's like there's throughout the book, there's all these small little details about like, oh, these planes flew overhead or like they run a drill on bombs like in the nearby town and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. Yeah, things are building up. And he actually says in the book, George Bowling, the the narrator says in the book, you know, this is coming and, you know, all this crazy stuff. Um, So obviously he's insanely politically aware, um, politically knowledgeable. He knows about the world and, and he's writing about it and coming up for air. But the thing that I love about it and that I find is just better than Orwell's other novels that he's famous for is that it's so personal and so real. There's nothing like we were talking before about magical realism. There's no um, falseness in it. And basically you're hearing inside of the head of 
one a guy who one day just says, you know what, I have a bit of money, I have to do this errand in the city, and I'm gonna take this like personal trip. He basically takes a trip back to his hometown that he can't emotionally explain to his wife or people in his family or stuff like that. And he's just pontificating about how um, basically he it's that running narrative in an old man's head about how the beginning of his life is much better than it is now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's very eloquent, you know, like, I mean, we all know people and we certainly all have feelings for our hometowns and stuff like that, but you know, kind of like the old man where it's like the world used to be way better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I think you're really hearing that narrative here. There's a few kind of, um, quotes that I, that I got ready to pull out. Um, and, and here's here's a really interesting one. This is like the beginning of the second chapter. I'll just read this really quickly. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. I suppose by this time you've got a kind of picture of me in your mind. A fat middle-aged bloke with false teeth and a red face. And subconsciously, you've been imagining that I was just the same even when I was in my cradle. But 45 years is a long time. And though some people don't change and develop, others do. I've changed a great deal. I've had my ups and downs, mostly ups. It may seem queer, but my father would probably be proud of me if he could see me now. He'd think it a wonderful thing that a son of his should own a motor car and live in a house with a bathroom. Even now, I'm a little above, above my own origin. And at other times, I've touched levels that we should have never dreamed of in those old days before the war. Before the war, how long shall we go on saying that, I wonder? How long before the answer will be, which war? <laughs> Which, of course, now is, you know, that's because he's not talking about yeah. World War Two. He's talking about World War One. And he's actually there. And then he yep. goes on to say he's talking about he says, you know, in my childhood, you could have meant the Boer War because he was born in 1893 and stuff like that. So yeah. it's just, you Every know, generation. He, yeah, he's just dropping it. And, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in this book that just drops bombs like that, literally and figuratively um, about the upcoming war. Um and it's really interesting kind of you're just in this person's head of like, what is this guy doing? Like his wife and children are at home, but he kind of is like, oh, I, I like take a train out to my own hometown. And he's in pursuit of finding. Um, and it's a really beautiful metaphor. It's it's such a powerful metaphor. He's in pursuit of finding a small pond where he used to fish when he was a boy. And he basically taught and I totally relate to this, too. He basically talks about how he was obsessed with fishing from the time he was like eight years old to the time he was 14 years old. That's basically all he thought about. And um, he has some great quotes in here. Like he remembers his hometown as in being permanently in summer because like all yeah. of his memories are like when all of the best memories from fishing and stuff like that. So he basically just thinks of lower Binfield where he used to live as permanently in summer. Which I think, and then the metaphor of the book, why it's called coming up for air. He he actually uh, the the narrator of the book um, directly references that what he's doing on that day when he goes away and takes this trip that he can't tell anyone about. He's coming up for air. He's basically saying he used to watch the fish in these ponds, and he always he says he can remember specific fish on specific days, and he remembers them coming up for air, like coming up to the surface. And kind of yeah. taking a breath. And it's just a great, it's such a beautiful and powerful and simple metaphor for what he believes about his own past. And and it's also, Orwell is also commenting on how much the world, but also how much the England changed from um, the death of Queen Victoria into what they call 
Uh, I think it's called like the Edwardian era. And that's another funny thing that we talked about the podcast before about how when I say to you the Edwardian era, what do you what time do you think of? Uh, I, I don't know. I'll you know, do you a think, lot of you King think about Edwards. like, yeah, I know, but you think about like kings and queens and shit, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you think about like, oh, that was Monarchy. a long time ago. The, odd, the Edwardian era, but that the, the, the Edwardian era is actually from 1901 to 1910 and extends in both really? directions up until the first world war. So it's basically not that long ago, like we said before. Uh-huh. And he, and he's sort of commenting on how much has changed. Like now the narrator George lives in sort of like the standard English suburban housing, which I can attest is ubiquitous among the the towns outlying London is basically just these rows and rows and rows of houses where they're all the same thing. <laughs> and they all just yeah. kind of started up from, it looks like they sprouted up like weeds. Um, so here's another paragraph. Um, he's, this is actually he, quick, you know, um, yeah. what I'm, can I tell you what I'm getting out of this so far yeah. or yeah. what I think, what I see it as? Yeah. It sounds to me like, a midlife crisis before like full-on consumerism like where it, you couldn't just go buy a sports car like you yes. had to reflect and like yeah, you didn't you, have like there were different ways yeah you are 100 percent right it's a window you're totally right it's a window into oh this guy you know everyone has heard the story of you know midlife crisis and he cheats on his wife or midlife yeah. crisis and he buys a sports car or he goes yeah, and, his hair. you know or like you said falling yeah. down goes Tattoo. and kills a bunch of people yeah but uh and this one is just i took the train one day and i didn't know why you know that kind of thing. <laughs> uh it's almost like a force that's drawing him back yep. back home which again is also a great metaphor but i'll read this little paragraph this is when he first gets to lower benfield and i'm not giving you any spoilers so don't worry about that okay It's a queer experience to go over a bit of country you haven't seen in 20 years. You remember it in great detail, and you remember it all wrong. All the distances are different, and the landmarks seem to have moved about. You keep feeling, surely this hill used to be a lot steeper. Surely that turning was on the other side of the road. And on the other hand, you'll have memories which are perfectly accurate, but which only belong to one particular occasion. You will remember, for instance, a corner of a field on a wet day in winter when the grass was so green that it's almost blue, and a rotten gatepost covered with lichen and a cow standing in the grass looking at you. And you'll go back after 20 years and be surprised because the cow isn't standing in the same place and looking at you with the same expression. Um, So yeah, I mean, he's just, there's a lot of kind of simple, really eloquent memory games in here and stuff like that. It's also... A hilarious book. Um, the guy has fake teeth <laughs> because he yeah. is, and also that's probably a metaphor that that Orwell is conjuring up that I just thought of now. He's in a transition period between his old teeth and his new fake teeth. So basically, he the 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 errand that he's supposed to run outside of town, and the reason why he takes his trip to his hometown is because he's picking up his brand new teeth. Um. So there's there's definitely a metaphor buried in there about capitalism and consumerism and stuff like that. But I also mm-hmm. wanted to read you a I wanted to give the flavor as well for people who want to pick up the book. I mean, it's just such a great book. I I can't I like I said, I'll argue forever that it's the best Orwell novel by far. <laughs> um but I'll also give you a flavor of of kind of how funny it is. Um so I'll start right here. 
I've been both fat and thin in my life, and I know the difference fatness makes to your outlook. It kind of prevents you from taking things too hard. I doubt whether a man who's never been anything but fat, a man who's been called fatty ever since he could walk, even knows of the existence of any real deep emotions. How could he? He's got no experience of such things. He can't ever be present at a tragic scene. Because a scene where there's a fat man present isn't tragic. It's comic. Just imagine a fat Hamlet, for instance, or Oliver Hardy <laughs> acting Romeo. Acting Romeo. Funnily enough, I'd been thinking something of the kind only a few days earlier when I was reading a novel I'd got off out of boots. Wasted Passion, it was called. The chap in the story finds out that his girl has gone off with another chap. He's one of these chaps you read about in novels and have pale, sensitive faces, dark hair, and, private in and a private income. I remember more or less... How the passage went. And this is him quoting the book in the novel. David paced up and down the room, his hands pressed to his forehead. The news seemed to have stunned him. For a long time, he could not believe it. Sheila, untrue to him? It could not be. Suddenly, realization rushed over him. He saw the fact in all its stark horror. It was too much. He flung himself down in a paroxysm of weeping. Then back to George's voice. Anyway, it went something like that. And even at that time, it started me thinking. There you have it, you see? That's how people, some people, are expected to behave. But how about a chap like me? Suppose Hilda, which is his wife, went off for a weekend with somebody else. Not that I'd give a damn. In fact, it would rather please me to find that she'd still got that much kick left in her. But suppose I did care. Would I fling myself down in a paroxysm of weeping? Would anyone expect me to? You couldn't. With a figure like mine, it would be downright obscene. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's just yeah, tons just... of, you know, hilarious stuff in there. He throws in great English characters and stuff like that, so... I'm just picturing Will Sasso like acting somber. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Will yeah, Sasso. Yeah. Yes. You <laughs> just cast the book for me. I'm going to reread coming up for air with Will Sasso as George Bowling. <laughs> and it's going to be a grand old time. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, just, I mean, there's endless reviews about out there about how, how great the book is. There's tons of quotes. I found tons of uh, stuff online. There's a great medium article by a guy named Harry J. Steed. He gives some good quotes in there. Um, you know, can things, I ask about yeah. the mood of the ending? Does it, is it a sad book? Is it happy? Is it neutral? Um, I would say it's neutral. I would say it's it's okay. sort of like a slice of life, but the things that you if you read in between the lines, it's really interesting. Like, um, let me see if I can find like, and it's also it's a really interesting sort of um, like all novels. It's a really interesting comparison to today um, because there's a lot of sort of interesting things in there about fascism about the spreading of hate and stuff like that. So like another quote from the book is, it's a ghastly thing really to have a sort of human barrel organ shooting propaganda at you hour by hour. The same thing over and over again. Hate, hate, hate. Let's all get together and have a good hate. War is coming. 1941, they say. And there'll be plenty of broken proper crockery and little houses ripped open like packing cases. It's all going to happen. All the things you've got at the back of your mind, the things you're terrified of, the things you tell yourself are just a nightmare only happen in foreign countries. The bombs, the food cues, the rubber truncheons, the barbed wire, colored shirts, slogans, enormous faces, the machine guns squirting out of bedroom windows. It's all going to happen. I know it. At any rate, I knew it then. There's no escape. Fight it against it if you like, or look the other way, pretend not to notice, or grab your spanner and rush out to do a bit of face smashing along with the others, but there's no way out. It's just something that's got to happen. 
Do you, um living in England, do you know what a spanner is now? I do like know. I still yeah, don't I do. know. I do know what a spanner what is. It? A spanner is like your Mor- small Morrissey. Morrissey <laughs> talks about them. <laughs> a spanner is like your garden shovel, like your small really? garden shovel. It might be you might call a spanner like the thing that grandma like digs in with the in the dirt, but you also might call a full size shovel a spanner. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, that's coming up for air. George Orwell's best book. I will fight you and your English professor and your mom and your uncle and whoever else says that 1984 is, is the best because I disagree. All right. Come at him online. <laughs> Come at Yeah. <laughs> Start screaming at people on Twitter. Uh, not to mention, uh, who's going to do the closing, me or you? Uh, you got this. Okay. So I guess the new rule is if you do the opening, then I do the closing. Yeah. Okay. So that's it, guys. That's Thanks for back. listening. This is Shitty Book Reports. Um, you can find us on at SBR the podcast pretty much everywhere, but Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Just look for SBR the podcast, all one word. You can also email us, SBR the podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, give us some praise. Tell us what books you want us to, uh, to think about, to look at, to maybe consider reading. And uh, see you next time. See you.